Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. folks good evening and welcome to red shirts and runabouts which is part of the heroes podcast network uh as usual i am one of your regular hosts greg bosco and with me as always are two very fine captains gonna turn it over to derek greetings everyone welcome back and jeremy live long and prosper all right and as you probably all noticed last week we kind of were taking a little mid-season break here with star trek discovery uh derek it comes back in january or february it comes back on January 7th. Nice. So only a few more weeks, and another one more month almost, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, last week we talked about the motion picture, a film that has, you know, lots of opinions. It's it's kind of funny, though. You talk to most people. There's very few people that outright hate it. Most people are kind of like, meh. It's boring and long. Um, this week we're going to talk about uh, one of the universally loved films, Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. But bef- before we get into that... I do want to talk about this uh, this Quentin Tarantino thing that's making its way around the internet. <laughs> the, um, fact, the fact that you even have to say the Quentin Tarantino thing, and we all know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's not an insult to say the man has a certain style of filmmaking that seems to be very popular. But is it a Star Trek style of filmmaking? Uh, answer is no. No, it is not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to agree with Jeremy there. I, I am a fan of most of Tarantino's films. Uh, there are certain aspects to his style that I do not like, but overall I, I'm a big fan of dialogue-driven films, so Pulp Fiction and um, Inglorious Bastards are a couple of my favorites. Um, with that said, I, I don't see his style meshing well with Trek. It's... It's all very vulgar. It's at times very racist. Uh, it's always very violent. And those are three things that Star Trek at least tries not to be. Well, in his films, he's always used even the kind of the racial stuff as part of the story to show sometimes what the, the victims of racism are struggling against in his own unique way. And I mean, I, I, the, even the action stuff alone. The the swearing of Quentin Tarantino movies is one of the things that he's known for. Yeah. And you, this is going to sound weird. I like, if they were going to say uh, Quentin Tarantino was going to direct, like, a Halloween episode of Star Trek Discovery in, episode, in Season 3, I might be like, eh, okay, I can see that one episode. But Why a Halloween episode? Well, I just, I'm remembering the old school days of X-Files where, like, once a year they would do a really weird Halloween episode, sometimes with, like, a guest mm. director. Yeah. And it would just be goofy stuff. Um, okay. I just, I, I love the idea of Sam Jackson in Klingon makeup calling somebody a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> no, if he just, was, okay, uh, if he was a Klingon, maybe. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. I, I mean, now look, Tarantino, of course, 
uh, is very experienced. He's made many movies. He's been in the industry for a long time. Maybe he has other sides to him that his films just haven't really shown, but I can't, I can't picture his movies and mesh that with a Star Trek reality at the same time. I mean, maybe if it was set in like the Zephyrm Cochran days and it's like this grungy, uh, like, you know, war torn, a little more modern sensibility earth, maybe I could kind of see it. But, and that's the, even if they, okay, let's say he even gets an opportunity to, to direct Star Trek Beyond, while not the biggest moneymaker of the new three was probably the best film of the new three. Yeah. And I know they've already they've already got a director picked for four, right? Uh, no, they 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 do not. The idea would be that he, this that it would be Tarantino. Oh, see, that's the thing, right? So at the moment, there is no director for four. Four is not officially happening yet. Um, it has not been greenlit as a production. So this would be the fourth film or the fourteenth film for for those who are counting all of them. And, and Jeremy, like even Jeremy was hinting at with the Samuel L. Jackson aspect, but there's a lot of like subplot actors that Tarantino uses in every movie. Like, would he, yeah. do, would he, would he bring them on board with this? I don't know. This, it's just so hard to imagine what Tarantino would do with, with the Star Trek IP. Like, I don't know. It would, it would almost be like an Orville movie if, if they talked like how, Tarantino directs people to talk, but in that setting where it's just, I don't know, it would be so strange. I like, I don't even know, I don't even know if it'd be good or bad or anything. It's just like, I can't wrap my head around what that would even be like. I think that's a good point. I mean, something that several of these articles um, that are reporting this have come back to is that he was reported saying that he thought yesterday's Enterprise from TNG is not only one of the best episodes of Star Trek, but one that would really, um, do well with a full two hour treatment on the big screen. And I agree with that sentiment. I love yesterday's enterprise for a multitude of reasons. And I think that a feature film length version that shows more of that timeline would be really cool. That does not necessarily mean that his image of it would be what I would want to see. I would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, and his, his directing style kind of always makes everything he does feel like, like a play mm-hmm. where everything is, is very staged and very scripted. And I don't know, something, something about seeing Star Trek done like it was a staged play seems so like, I mean, that, and that's what I just keep coming back to. It's like this, this could be fascinating. It could be amazing. It could be terrible. It, I'm, I'm kind of like pretty much in the, in the camp of like, let, let them do it. We'll see what happens. See, it makes me nervous because the franchise as a whole hasn't done well financially, you know, over the years. You know, Beyond did not do very well, which is why 4 was not greenlit immediately, you know, when other movies get their sequels greenlit on, you know, the first week in theaters a lot of the time. Um, Yeah, but Beyond had no marketing. Like, nobody knew what was even happening. That terrible marketing, too. That was the problem. But that's, that's part of it, though, is Paramount just doesn't have the faith in the franchise that they have in, in other franchises. So if you yeah. give Tarantino the role, or not the role, of course, but the, the job of, of director and or writer, because it sounds like he would do both or at the minimum write it, um, you run the real risk of alienating a ton of people. Because first off, 
is he going to be able to pull off a not R-rated film? I don't know. So are you going to have R-rated Trek in theaters? Because that would be... Well, the, the Deadline Hollywood story I'm looking at right now says he has the story idea and he wants to direct, but Paramount and J.J. Abrams would be assembling a writer's room. So he might be a little bit hands-off in the actual writing side of it, which might tone down the vulgarity. So so maybe maybe he just wants to give it the artistic direction. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. So he's got a general synopsis of what would happen, and then J.J. Abrams and, and the rest of uh, Bad Robot would write it. But it. That's what the deadline story says, yeah. Okay. I mean, that that's... Better than him doing both. I mean, I, I'm rarely a fan of a director both writing and directing the film anyway. Uh, it, it works sometimes, don't get me wrong, but I, I'm rarely a fan of that. So that makes me feel better about it. It still makes, it still makes me nervous. One thing for certain is if, if they were to, if they were to take a chance like this, a risk like this, it's going to be a huge popcorn movie. Cause the name alone, Tarantino, you're going to get that audience that, that, 14 to 18 audience overwhelmingly is going to be immediately interested. And then that 18 to 25 is obviously going to go see it. You're going to see it because they may have a mild interest in Star Trek. Oh, and Quentin Tarantino? This is going to be awesome. Well, and also after Discovery, we have our first Trek nudity and our first Trek F-bomb. So, I don't know. It, it might be the time to see some, uh, some full-on R-rated Trek movie making. See people get like blasted apart with phasers and splattered all over the wall. I mean, maybe, but when you look at the other major blockbusters, you know, you always have to keep in mind that like, Deadpool was this huge outlier in the amount of money it made as a rated R film. And you look at what Marvel, DC, and Star Wars are all doing, and other than the the uh, uh, ultimate cut of Batman versus Superman, all of the other films in those three categories are PG thirteen or lower. Um, so none of these ones that have hundreds of millions of dollars, and in the case of Star Wars, billions of dollars, right? None of them are taking that R-rated risk. Well, Logan was rated R, right? Yeah, but, well, that was Fox. That's uh, a good point. That was Fox. And let's be honest. It, yeah, but it, also... No, it was rated R, not for nudity or anything like that, just for the violence. Yeah, and, and it, it, I, that's for the it, same company that did Deadpool. So Yeah, true. But also, we're in an era where who's who's checking how old you are for your ticket rating. Everybody buys it online and comes like, I, I don't interact with anyone when I go to see a movie at the Alamo. I mean, you're right about that. Um, to an extent Now this is an old story, but back when, um, Dawn of the Dead, the remake came out for Dawn of the Dead, I, uh, bought some tickets online cause I've been buying my, my movie tickets online for a very long time. And, um, we, it was a double date that we were doing and the ladies, did not bring their purses with them into the theater because we were just going to go see a movie. We were buying the snacks, no big deal. And we were in high school at the time. So we were seniors in high school and, uh, they were carting people, not at the theater, but at the door to the screen. And I had to, I actually had an argument with the manager at the time because there was nobody anywhere who told us, when we bought the tickets, when we picked up the tickets, which you had to do from a physical person back then, nobody told us when they were tearing our tickets that you're going to need an ID. But they they carted us at the door, and I had to argue with the guy. So, I mean, they could wow. do something like that for a franchise like Star Trek that has been family-friendly 98% of the time. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. 
I don't know. I've since I got my first like debit card when I was sixteen. I've I've just gone to multiplexes and bought my card or bought my tickets at a kiosk and walked in to someone who was usually like you know fifteen taking tickets. I've I've never had my my card my <laughs> you know my age questioned. I guess that's no. I've, I mean you're you're right, but there still is a very large group of of people that they they won't take their kids to an R-rated film, but they will take their kids to PG-13, right? So when Infinity War comes out in May or when The Last Jedi comes out a couple weeks from now, everybody under the sun is going to be taking their families to these movies, even if they're PG-13. And um, you're not going to get that same base for an R-rated film, which is why Deadpool and Logan were much bigger deals than the average R-rated film. Yeah, definitely. So it's a huge risk for a franchise that hasn't done financially well in quite some time. But again, if if he's not the one writing it, if he's just directing it, um, and it's like a story that he had an idea, I could I could see it working. Because I mean, he's he's directed an episode of CSI. He's directed directed ER once. So I mean, he can certainly put his hands on thing with without including Sam Jackson dropping F-bombs or well, we, the N-word. We know there will be a lot of action, and it'll be loud. <laughs> it'll so, be loud. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, there's one more rumor I wanted to bring up. I wasn't sure if you guys heard about the Patrick Stewart buzz. No. During an interview he was making with Variety Magazine about uh, the Oscar for the Oscar buzz about Logan. And, of course, they asked him if he would ever return to Star Trek. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize the quote. Oh Lord, not that I can think of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe if someone came up with a brilliant idea, I would do it. Of course. Yeah. I mean, look, Patrick Stewart is at a point in his career where he's really enjoying himself. He gets yep. to do stage performances with his best friend in the world. He is playing characters that the world loves. If the right script came in front of him for Captain Picard, uh, and his schedule worked out. I mean, I don't think he'd have a reason to say no. He knows what that fandom has done for his career. So I, I think, though, it comes down to that that kind of fan servicey feeling for it. Is it forced? It, it's going to be the Tarantino movie where he plays his own ancestor, you know, Peter Picard <laughs> or something. Peter Picard. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, they could basically do Yesterday's Enterprise with him because he looks almost the same. <laughs> yeah, the man does yeah. not age. <laughs> it's uh, no offense to the rest of the cast, but they they've aged a bit. So, yeah, he's he's pretty magical in that respect. <laughs> Though he did start out looking older than he was, so he's kind of just aged into his own look. That's a fair point. That's a fair he's, point. He's starting to look more like his character from uh, Excalibur. <laughs> oh, yes, the older he, all he's got to do is grow out that beard. I'm like, eh, it's he's Excalibur and Picard. There we go. I, I would be so sad to see them do with Picard what they did with uh, Xavier and Logan and just see this, like, spent old Picard, at, you know. Uh, that would be so tragic. They kind of did that in All Good Things. Yeah. True, true, true. Yeah, when he, you know, essentially they're, they're showing symptoms that are similar to Alzheimer's and things like that. Um, but, of course, he's right the whole time because of Q. Spoiler maybe alert. Maybe <laughs> it'll be the... Uh... Like a similar to that Star Trek episode parallels when all the Enterprises are bursting through the timeline, and yes. you have the, crazy, the, the crazy Riker with the crazy beard, but instead it's crazy Picard with the beard, <laughs> scream, just screaming about the Borg, and everybody's like, "Wait, this is the great idea you wanted?" He's like, "Yeah, I always wanted to do that." 
Well, that's how you know it's an alternate timeline, is if Picard has a beard. True. That's how you know it's not the real future, right? Uh. Well, that's how you how you travel between dimensions is shaving in, in the Star Trek world. All right. Well, this is a good transition point to jumping into <laughs> Wrath of Khan. And it's a good transition point because, let's be honest, Wrath of Khan was a huge transition transition point, excuse me, for the entire franchise. I mean... Yes. It, yeah. Yeah. Creating arguably one of the most recognizable uniforms in all Star Trek, for one. Mm-hmm. But then it started a series of films that all actually interconnected. Well, it's a uniform that stuck around for the most um, on the big screen, right? So it was in six movies, if you include Generations, where it kind of cameos. Um, whereas, you know, of course the motion picture space pajamas don't last very long. <laughs> nope. Um and even the TNG crew, they spend one movie in one uniform and three movies in a different uniform. Yep. So, and it's also, changing. we already talked about it, the episode, the Monster Maroon is in yesterday's Enterprise. Yeah. Because the crew of the it's Enterprise true. C are wearing it. It is. It's in some of the best Star Trek. It's in yesterday's Enterprise. It's also in Tapestry. Yeah. Is it in, no, it's not in the Trials and Tribulations in DS9? No. No, they would have been in the regular ones. Yeah, that was the the original series ones. Uh, but it was in the, uh, and I'm drawing a blank on the title, but it was the anniver- the 35th anniversary episode of Voyager, where they went, uh, they, the, Janeway does a mind meld with Tuvok to go to Star Trek The Undiscovered Country on on the Excelsior oh, with Sulu. Oh, that's right, that's right. So, oh, yeah. I'm drawing a blank on the, the episode title, but uh, that's a good one. The 35th so. anniversary, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary, man. I know. <laughs> anyway, so back to Rafa. I know we can go on tangents. It's so easy with Star Trek because we love it. Um, and there's a lot of content. There's, uh, yes. <laughs> so Rathacon, I mean, I love it. Everybody knows I love it. I talk about it all the time. But let's, Derek, let's start with you. Would talk about Rathacon. Well, uh, so for those who've been listening to the show for a little while, I'm a bit of a numbers guy. Uh, I, I think numbers can help tell an interesting side to, to the story of a film. So Wrath of Khan had a small budget of only $11.2 million, but it brought in uh, $78.9 million domestically, which nice. like sounds like a lot. Now, of course, this was uh, 1982, um, but if you were to adjust everything for inflation, its adjusted gross um, actually brings it in fifth place of the 13 Star Trek movies with um, the motion picture and the voyage home above it and then the 09 Star Trek and Into Darkness as well. Um, so it's done well. It was supposed to revitalize the franchise. Um, some of my favorite stuff about Wrath of Khan that I'm sure we'll get into it is something that... I don't even think I noticed until it was pointed out to me. It is a rare movie where the the main protagonist and the main antagonist are never on the set together in the entire film. <laughs> yeah. They, is, they share yeah. a couple of small conversations over the view screen, but they're never in the same place, ever. Nope. No fist fights. No <laughs> five-minute dialogue between each other on the bridge of the Enterprise or something. Mm-hmm. Which no, no classic it, Shatner chop or anything and, like that. And I, um, and I hate to say it, but the double-fisted overhead yeah, pound. But yes. spoilers, uh, they get into a fist fight with Khan and in, into darkness. Spoilers, and 
That, that's it's, it. They get into a superhuman jumping on hover car fight. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get to into darkness one of these days. Uh, but Do we uh, have to? <laughs> I, I think my yes. my favorite aspect to the Wrath of Khan, honestly, other other than some of the emotional strings that it, of course, pulls, is the naval tone of the film. It feels like the most naval yeah. of all the Star Treks. Yes. Yeah, there's there's a piece when they're trying to put things back together uh, after the first encounter between the, the two ships that everybody was running around just, like, holding parts mm-hmm. and, like, moving things and, and things were flashing red. Where it's like, oh, it's, it seems like they're on, like, a like a big boat. Yeah. And they're, like, doing boat stuff. This is interesting. But well, even the battle is- sequences, you know, with, like, Reliant coming next to, like, their pirate ships, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, or and the impression you get is every shot counts. Which, right. Yes. It's like you take a chance firing a torpedo, and you're like, "Holy crap! If this misses, I don't know if we could fire another one." <laughs> Versus Into Darkness, where the Enterprise is hit thirteen thousand times by a ship <laughs> ten times its size. Uh, but no, you're so right. Like every shot matters. Every shot could be your last. And when you miss, you know, the, the, you know. Even, like the nebula is great because you know their sensors don't quite work, so it felt very you know classic on the high seas where you know you, you don't have these precise aiming sensors that you can target lock on. You you, you have to kind of you know best guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this- well, you also don't have the the like full ring of phase emitters like you have on the next generation Enterprise. You have like specifically front of the ship two tubes that the phasers were coming out of and they're shooting them like machine guns mm-hmm. and it was like oh this is a much different functionality to these weapons well in a good comparison well it's going to be a random comparison but it's good in my brain <laughs> is the remember the opening battle scene of revenge of the sith where you just got thousands of ships hammering away at each other nobody has any idea what's going on you have a vague idea of who's who but shots are hitting everything everything's exploding and you're like am i supposed to care because mm-hmm. There's no context. Uh, the Trade Federation was having trouble with their negotiations, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good point, good point. But it's like stuff's happening and nobody cares, but you're watching Wrath of Khan and you're like, the Enterprise is just getting absolutely jacked. And crewmen are like on yeah, and those, fire. Yeah, those sustained beams just cutting a line through them, They it, it felt like so much more damaging than just the standard explosion and then we cut to people doing the, the fake shaking around of the bridge. Right. It's just like, it's they just sit on that that burn as it goes across the hole and it's like oh it hurts so bad i i think that was the key for the wrath of khan is you know in the motion picture there, there there's very little conflict conflict there's no real direct aggression outside of a couple of, of small moments where Chekhov gets his hand burned um <laughs> so stupid. And, and in the wrath of khan like they they bring it back to you're out in space alone and there's regulations for a reason because they might be the difference between life and death. Every shot counts, and it begins the thread that follows the neck every every remaining Kirk film that he is a part of, which is this this concept of of aging, of getting older, of finding your usefulness in the second half of your life, and not not giving up on your abilities. Right, because it starts with you know it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, and he he uh, 
gets his 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 reading glasses <laughs> from from McCoy, you know, and they're just it begins that that thread that that follows through of these are not the young hot shots that we'll end up seeing, of course, in TNG and Voyager and DS9. These are the veterans. They have put in their time. They've been promoted through and through because they've saved the galaxy over and over again. But they've still got something left in the tank, you know? Well, yeah. Cause... And with Kirstie Alley, we're bringing in the next the next generation, even though it's not the next generation. Good right. point. The next generation of fans and cast and crew. And the thing the movie does so well, and Derek, you and Jeremy both hit on, is the subtlety of some of the actions. The, the concentrated phaser fire just absolutely damaging a ship. The, the aging mentality. And it's like the scene that I will, always stands out to me is when, you know, uh, when, when Chekhov and Captain Terrell are on, you know, set the Alpha 5, aside from all the other stuff going on. You remember when they're talking and Terrell says, I've never even met Admiral Kirk. And the, and Ricardo Montalban, his reaction was just like, Admiral. And it's just like made him more mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it, but his eyes, his skin flushed a little bit. The action, like the, the subtlety of the acting alone was maybe some of the best we've had in all of Star Trek. Well, I mean, I love that you're describing Ricardo Montalban's acting as so <laughs> chewed so much scenery. Well, yeah, but that that scene was okay. That one scene was pretty subtle. Yeah, that that one line reading before he started shouting and and like tenting his fingers like a villain. It was just it was such a cartoonish portrayal. Like I loved it, but it was just like, oh man, what a ham. Well, and to be fair, so we have 13 Star Trek films to date, and other than Christopher Plummer in The Undiscovered Country, there really isn't another single villain who I believe reaches the level of Ricardo's con. I agree. Not uh, Sherlock? <laughs> no, not not John Harrison. John Harrison, no, I don't think he really pulls it off. Um, <laughs> but I think that that's a real piece of it is that they were able to, to, to film two different stories between Kirk and Khan that meet up a couple of times, but you keep going back and forth between them, showing these different sides and what drives these characters. And for Kirk, it's the need to be useful, the need to be significant. Whereas Khan just simply wants revenge, right? His is a much more pure and, and focused type of, of issue. Um, and I think it's that balance that really makes for a fun movie. I agree. And it's the interaction between them because that hate is there. And it's, I mean, Jeremy's right. Cause there's that scenes, there's scenes where Khan is kind of freaking out and yelling and being overwhelming, but it's like when they first open up and I don't know, I just love that scene when they're in, when they're in the, the botany bay and Chekhov realizes it's the botany bay and, Khan gets more upset that he's an admiral, and he then and then he's like mad. He tries to play off that he's mad because he was abandoned, and then they throw in though it's the you know then his wife is dead. It's like there's just so much stuff that they throw in that it I, it's going to be. It's, I mean, how old, the movie came out in eighty two, right? Yes. So I mean, it's thirty. How old am I? Wait, I'm thirty five. <laughs> I was born in eighty two. It's, <laughs> it's thirty five years old, and it's to me, it's still the top. Top Star Trek film. Yeah, I I enjoyed it quite a bit, and like I said last time, this is my first time seeing these movies, so it was it was interesting to see this um, be so good after seeing the last one be so bad. <laughs> it is night and day, right? 
Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. But it's also it was it was interesting for me to see this because like I've been trying over the last few years to try and fill in the gaps in my like my cinematic history and seeing stuff because like you know not writing checking the boxes on like AFI top one hundred kind of stuff because um, this is such a foundational movie uh, that there are clearly so many fans that grew up because like I've I feel like I've seen every single scene in Wrath of Khan spoofed. In Futurama, in Family Guy, in any number of things, like I, I could have quoted, like as soon as I saw, like when she's showing him the the Genesis Cave, I was like, oh, this is I've seen this three times, but I've never seen this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's a part of of cinematic history and pop culture that has resonated since 1982 for sure, um, and it, it created a a stark direction change. I know that. Roddenberry was not a big fan of this type of going back to a more con- conflicted, violent story, but it reignited the franchise. Conflicted, yes, it's conflicted, uh, <laughs> but it did reignite the franchise. And I have a very hard time ranking the Star Trek films, so I always say that Wrath of Khan is always in my top three because my top three change depending on my mood. But they're the Wrath of Khan, the Undiscovered Country, and First Contact, which are the three most high-stake kind of violent Star Trek films. They are. They have the most conflict in them. They have the most to lose. And I think it it pushes the characters to a better spot. Yeah, because the tension in Wrath of Khan is not just, you know, Kirk and Khan. You get the whole Genesis device mixed in there and all the the ramifications of that and Kirk having to fight in his mind. Well, we can't let Khan get this. And same thing with um, Dr. Marcus. Dr. Marcus, after Khan beams over and they get rid of the device, even she's like, all right, we got to do anything we can to keep this away from basically everybody. Yeah. And what was Khan's plan exactly to do? What was he going to do with the Genesis device? I mean, there was never a specific plan mentioned, I assume, to regain the power that he had lost since being shot into space. You know, cause, by terraforming a planet? Oh, uh, by maybe threatening an existing planet. Mm. You know, for, mm. for resources, for money, for for people to follow him. Because for, for those who don't you know, know the, the background of the character, and they did fill this out a bit in the IDW comic books. There was, a, I think it was a five-issue miniseries that was really quite good. Um, you know, there was th- that war that happened, the eugenics war, he was one of the leaders. He and, and his friends, his original eugenics partner, so to speak, split up the planet. And then they went to war with each other because they all wanted a bigger piece of the pie. Um, and so I think he would have just gone back to that, except he would have been more or less the only eugenics left. And was that did that occur pre-warp drive? I, yes. I'm not clear. Okay, yes. so that was, that was pre... Is that from Cochran? It was it pre... Was. Yeah, pre-World War Three. It was late 90s, I believe. So, yeah, so uh, 1996 was the year the Botany Bay was lost in space, um, which, for those who remember their their 90s history, was a, a sad day for all of us. Um, but, but, yeah, so that was 1996, and, and then First Contact you know, isn't until uh, the 21st century, so. And that, that Earth timeline, so they had the eugenics wars, and then World War Three, and then the aftermath of World War Three. it's like, damn. They took three punches of gut right in a row. Well, you know, we, we are a people that don't learn our lessons quickly. 
<laughs> Not until we invent warp drive, of course. Right, right, of course. Um, so, okay, so let's, we haven't really kind of gone through the, the film in order. We've skipped some stuff. Um, at the beginning of the movie, you know, it starts off actually as a training program, which... Right, the Kobayashi Maru? It is. It's This is the first time you see it. Right, and it, it kind of it's that no win scenario, and Kirk doesn't like to lose, and and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I always love that scene, especially at the end when Kirk is going through and giving everyone kind of the grade, and Bones is on the ground. You know, it's, what about my performance? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's odd with the timeline now being revised with Star Trek Into Darkness that we see they have the uh, the full hologram technology with his little shooting game that he plays with Ash Tyler. Now we know that that apparently took a step back and became live actors. Well, I I don't know. Part of me thinks that something like the Kobayashi Maru would be still good to have with real people, um, you know, because you need to know their weaknesses and their strengths and kind of anticipate what they're going to do. And I, I think a computer program would make that too rigid. Um, so I like that. Even in the in the 2009 film, that they still use the real people. Well, even uh, remember Wesley Crusher's first Academy exam when he's trying to get the entrance and they do the live action drill with him about people at risk and he's convinced it's real and he has to save that one guy after the pipe falls on him. Right. Yes, exactly. I think when you when you know it's a real person, you kind of get into it a little bit more because uh, it's already a simulation. Right. And the more the more that is simulated, the the, the less real it is, of course. So I, I like that. Um but yeah, 1982 technology definitely hasn't uh, hasn't really predicted the future we live in. If we were to build that scenario today with normal consumer technology, it would still look better. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. it would. But you're... how do you think Khan would do in the Kobayashi Maru? Oh man, I mean, I don't think he ever. I mean, I, well, Kirk, of course, is the only one who's ever passed it. Um, but I, I think he would have just been blown the smithereens every time because he would try and engage the Klingons. Yeah, I think his... He would, would just, yeah, sacrifice all of his men that he could. His aggression would just win out and force him to take the first action he would think of. Probably. Which is attack. But, I mean, and again, we get to meet Christy Alley. You know, her first role as a Vulcan. Yep. Well, yes. only role as a Vulcan, excuse me. Since she was um, replaced in the next role movie. A crying Vulcan. Yeah. Which is a shame, because... We don't see her anymore because of all the situations she, the actress went through, unfortunately, in the 80s with those challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, she did a great job. I mean, I thought I actually liked the character. I liked the actress. Um, oh, it was great. I loved having... And they tried it again in, in Star Trek VI with uh, Kim Cattrall. But I love the idea of there being a... The Vulcan we've always told, been told Vulcans are, and then what Spock had become in Star Trek Two, which had been this very much walking the line between human and Vulcan. You know, when she calls him out, she's like, you lied. I exaggerated. Yeah. (laughs) To her, there was like no difference. Right. And I I like that. And she had good chemistry with the cast. And, but Derek, you touched on it a few minutes ago. They go, they don't even, they don't even wait because they go right from the simulation to, you know, McCoy giving a gift or excuse me, Spock giving the gift. And then, you know, McCoy giving a gift of glasses and then slipping in, you know, some, usually somebody your age, I would prescribe. He also gave him Romulan Ale. And Romulan Ale. Of course, yes. <laughs> Which is not going to help with the vision. Um, no. 
But, but yeah, it's maybe. true that you know, Bones has the crack about how they're they're treating his birthday. Everybody has birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a damn funeral? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he says the space travel is a game for the young. <laughs> now, do you yeah. think now when you actually see him acting about all that later on, do you think he's trying to convince himself that space travel is for the young? Because obviously he doesn't want to stay behind a desk. Yeah, and that's interesting with um, Bones telling him that he's hiding from himself. The the psychology of, like, especially after the motion picture where we see just how much of an egregious jerk he is, like, stealing the ship and, and bossing everybody around. Like, I wonder how much of that is he learned a lesson from that and then tried to, to hold back since he did kind of make some big mistakes during that that movie. Yeah, I, okay, so one thing that's unclear to me, I can't remember, is how much time has gone by between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan. Does anybody know? I don't remember them making it clear. Okay, because it seems like a... I'm sure they said the star date at some point. It feels like a good chunk of time, because Spock now is not only back in Starfleet, but he's a captain, you know, and... Yeah. You know, Sulu is a commander, and the uniforms are completely different. Um, you know, he's been behind that sh- that desk for a long time, it feels like. Um, whereas in the first film, they're very much going on that journey, you know, again. They're continuing that journey. It feels very much like an extension of the original series, whereas this feels like a gap. Yeah, and they even mention how the crew is basically cadets and trainees. So it's like they're right. they're bringing out, for lack of better terminology, the old crew and bringing in a new crew. So mm-hmm. it's conceivably maybe been five years or something. I got to look up the timeline. Um, that means Spock is the captain, and he's taking through these people on training missions and all this uh, Kobayashi Maru stuff. So it's it's got to be a good long while. I mean, uh, you know, what's his name is is off on a space station doing research, and and people are wherever they are. Right. Right. Hmm. No, now I'm stuck thinking about the time. Anyways, um. well, I'm lo- I'm, lo- I'm looking it up, so <laughs> we we will know. So, uh, the Wrath of Khan takes place in March of 2285. Um, okay. So, if that if that helps anybody there, and then the movie itself. I'm sorry for the the delay here. Uh, takes place in oh okay, so we don't have an exact date, but it's in the 2270s. So that means it's been, it could be 10 or 15 years. Which would make a yeah, lot of so sense. That's a, that's a lot of time to be sitting behind a desk admiraling. It is, yeah. And we, we don't really know how much these people have, have been together and seen each other during this time frame. This may have been an opportunity. Maybe this is their, them thinking it's the end, right? They're going to be splitting up at this point. Yeah. And at one point they do um, mention a a fifteen year time gap, and that's when Kirk says he hasn't seen the scientist woman. I forget her name. He said we haven't. I haven't spoken to you for fifteen years. Oh yeah, Marcus. Because yeah, yeah. Well, and his son. I mean, David's got. He's got to be like twenty, right? Yeah, I mean, he's he looked like he was pushing thirty almost. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was about to say. He's almost like in his thirties, but then. You look at his mother, I'm like, all right, his mother, that means his mother would have to be like in her 50s. I'm like, uh, she did not, yeah. she aged very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. 
So as as much as we've we've given praise to this movie, it's it's really interesting to me having kind of osmosed aspects of this movie, and it, it felt very familiar to me because I've seen pieces of it, and I knew generally the story. I had no idea Kirk had a son or that his son was in this movie. I feel like it's such a like non part of the story. Like it was it was like this is Kirk's son, but they pass over that, and it's not pivotal to the plot at all, really. Well, if it makes you feel any better. It becomes pivotal to two future films. Oh, does it? Okay. So that's all I'm going to say since you haven't seen them. But it becomes very important in two of the future films. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. Move, moving on. But if you move on in the movie, so they have the Kobayashi Maru entrance mm-hmm. and Spock and uh, given the, the book, McCoy given the eyeglasses, which I love because you can tell Kirk's like, oh, wonderful, thanks, appreciate it. Um. <laughs> so so before we move too far past that I do want to say one thing I feel so bad for the guy that they pass in the hallway that's just mopping the floor outside the Kobayashi Maru test area because in a, in a world with like no economy where everybody is just given something to the, their skill level that guy's just mopping I can't get a <laughs> robot to do that well now keep in mind Star Trek is the phantom that has played very fast and loose with the concept of currency in the Federation, Starfleet, and on Earth. So there are times where they do make money and there's enlisted officers and or enlisted men versus officers and mm. uh, you know there's there's somewhat of a caste system at times like in TNG they're the best of the best but in first contact Picard mentions how they've evolved beyond personal possessions. So it definitely feels like it's whatever's convenient to that particular story. And then you go to DS9 where everybody's just trying to make Latinum. Right, well, yeah. <laughs> Gold-pressed Latinum. Everybody's right. got money in Deep Space Nine, <clears throat> right? But they also talk like about um, they talk about uh, transporter credits, where when Cisco was in the Academy, he would spend all of his transporter credits to come back home for dinner. Oh, yeah, good point. Right, so, I mean, that wasn't, like, dollars, but it was some kind of currency... Yeah, it's like rationing. Right? So, like, I don't know. It, it, it definitely is inconsistent. Well, if, <laughs> if, if we advance the plot of the film a little bit, so then we have Captain Terrell and, and, you know, Chekhov on the Reliant. They're scanning for a system to use the Genesis device. Mm-hmm. One thing that always bothered me is they're trying to find a dead planet. I get it. They have pretty decent star charts. And they land on a planet that they think is SETI Alpha 6. But it's not. And the whole time I'm like, and then you, you figure out why. It's because, you know, it's SETI Alpha 5 because SETI Alpha 6 was ex- exploded. And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, wait a second. All right, the planet exploded, but didn't, wouldn't Star Trek real, or Starfleet realize that, okay, the system used to have eight planets. Now it has seven. Where the hell's, what happened to the, what happened to the sixth one? Did nobody it's, ask that? It's even worse, though, because if you just came to the system for the first time ever and counted the planets. Yeah. <laughs> you'd still go to number five, right? Because the one after it was the one that blew up. At yep. least if he was on six and five blew up and they went, they thought they were going to five, that would make sense because it would be the fifth planet now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's when you get the whole epic. God, this is nerdy even for us. It is nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> it's called counting. All right. You go like, it, look, we're talking about planets. There aren't like a, a million of them, right? So you, you look at, at the, at the chart 
You scan the system. How many? Might be a million planets. Not in Star Trek's terms, you know. (laughs) True. Right? So you go to the planet, you scan the system. Hey, how many giant spheres are there in the system? (laughs) Now, maybe if they're trying to, like, do it to a moon of Saturn where there's, like, 70 other moons and you're like, ah, crap. I think we're missing one. Um, Right? Like, that would would be tougher. But you're talking the difference between five and and six. six. That's why you have to drop transponder beacons on the planet that you can scan and ping back, and they give you the name of the planet. There you well, go. Especially if you drop a, a monster murder bot on a planet named Khan, and you can't remember where you put them. Yeah. Well, there's that, too. <laughs> like, tag and release those things. That wasn't in the notes anywhere that a vicious, hyper-intelligent war criminal and his 70 family members are here. Nobody <laughs> had that written down anywhere. I mean, Starfleet. There's, they even talk about it. they had because I know, and you know, in the in the TV show at Talos, they had a warning beacon like "Do not approach for any reason," et cetera, et cetera. Oh so yeah, right. We know they, they have could beacons. have done it. Yeah, that's a pretty common thing. Yeah, there's beacons everywhere. They, they, no one dropped a beacon. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they did. Instead, the Alpha Six explosion destroyed it. Yeah. It just sent a single rock that hit the beacon. <laughs> and then at the same time, now we can joke all we want about how Chekhov and Khan never actually met in Space Seed. Um, we can talk about that, sure. But either way, if Chekhov did meet Khan or knew about Khan, then he should have known about City Alpha. Yep. Yeah. So none of that really worked for me, ever. That never made sense. Um, there is, I do like the, the head cannon joke about how they just met in the bathroom <laughs> during space seed would be amazing i mean had to happen. it's possible it's possible I mean, it's possible it, it you know what happened in robocop remember they they bump into each other in the bathroom and they realize that the one guy's a really he's a jerk and he gets him killed there we go yes i mean i'm inserting robocop into a star trek podcast i apologize hey P- think the, peter weller peter think weller the enterprise had <laughs> You think the Enterprise just had those big trough urinals like they do at ballparks? Um, <laughs> I don't know. We never really get to see much of what those look like. Yeah. So, so it's hard, it's hard to say. It's a laser wall that you pee into and it just evaporates. <laughs> there you go. That does seem more likely. Yes, I like that. Yeah. The sonic, the so sonic showers. As, there we go. Yeah. As far as the timeline goes for some of this stuff, how, how do the augments from Enterprise connect to... Khan and his family in this movie. So the augments from Enterprise would be the descendants of the augments from Khan's time. Because because the Botany Bay was still lost in space during Enterprise. Oh, okay. So it was it was Doctor Doctor Soong's father found the embryos that were the children of Khan. Something like that. Yeah. I don't remember the exact tree connection, but the Botany Bay was still lost in space during this time period of Enterprise. Okay. Yeah. Right, because they don't encounter it until the original series. Mm-hmm. Exactly, which which makes it kind of interesting, because if you think about it then, you know, Data is almost related to Khan. So Brent Spiner's character in Enterprise, was he the son of Khan? Because he wasn't an augment, right? He he. So no, he, he was not an augment. He was related to Khan. I don't remember exactly how. And then his, mm. I guess his son or grandson would have been the one that created Data and Lore. Right. Hmm. 
Because Khan's last name is Soom, right? Right, exactly. Khan, Khan Noonien Soom? Right. Yep. Khan Noonien Singh. Interesting. Singh. Is it Singh? S-I-N-G-H, I believe. Okay. It's hard Hello. to keep track of that after all That's these years. Freakishly close, though, when you think about it like that. So maybe I'm, mis- I'm mistaken then. My my mistake, Trekkies and Trekkers. Yeah, I make it all the time. <laughs> so, um, but either, either way, the Botany Bay was still lost in space during Enterprise. So, well, let's give Khan credit because so they they find him on SETI Alpha Five, which say whatever the counting error. I get it, and they immediately force the Reliant to beam them all up. I know Starfleet's always had that weird thing with hostages. You never know exactly if they're going to bow to the aggressor or not. But well, it wouldn't, the, the, the it wouldn't slug, be a hostage situation. Yeah, though, that's what I was about to say, the slug thing. Yeah, exactly. I really... That, I, I, that puppeteering work during the sequence where he's pulling the young out of the the slug puppets, that was, that was pretty good. That was impressive. That was like, uh, you know... It was very good. Level. And, by the way, my wife hates that part, so Erica, you're going to have to rewatch the ear part five times. Um... Pretty gross. It is pretty gross. She hates it. It's grosser when it comes back out. Oh, yes. So skipping skipping forward a little bit. Why is uh, Kirk's son always on the bridge? <laughs> uh, that's funny. He's just always hanging out. He has nothing. He's no part of that fight. Well, he's the yeah. captain's son. I mean, come on, Admiral's well, the, son. Nobody knows that. <laughs> Kirk does. No, right? it, Kind of. I mean, Kirk does, yeah. It's a really good point, though, because it does kind of just feel like the bridge is supposed to be this very secure, you know, almost top-secret area, so to speak, because all of the vital systems are controlled from there. And here's this kid who's not even in Starfleet. He's a scientist on some far remote station, mainly because his mom is a scientist, and he's just... Yeah, this curly-haired nobody just standing between Bones and Chekhov <laughs> like he's some big deal. Right. Right. Get out of here. He's an old buddy. I mean, I guess the the main command crew might know of him. <laughs> Everybody whispers about Kirk's illegitimate child. Right? I mean, because <laughs> Kirk knew he had a kid. He just He's got to have more than one. Oh, probably. I would imagine probably, but... A lot of green green kids running around. I don't know. I, we, could, we could talk about Kirk someday, but I think he is unfairly labeled as a womanizer. <laughs> I do. I, I think that more often than not, he actually wasn't. And uh, we hashtag not all Kirk. No, no, it's nothing like that. I just think it's <laughs> it's it's one of those tropes that kind of got brought along. Like beam me up, Scotty is never uttered in Star Trek. Right in the red shirt death. Right in red shirt deaths. Exactly. Like all of these tropes that people have just accepted as part of the Star Trek culture that isn't really accurate. So yeah, just like for all you Star Wars fans out there, you know the. The Luke, I am your father, is not the lion. Nope, it is not. So. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's things like that. That's all. You know, it's just one of those things. That's a good comparison. I like that. It's, it's one of those, actually, it's only a champagne if it's from the champagne region of France kind of factoids. It's like, all right, society disagrees. We're all moving on from this. <laughs> well, that, all right, all right. That's a good point, though, because if you if you look at Rathacon and the pacing of Rathacon, they don't waste any time. 
because no, God. As, as soon as they were were taking the shuttle pod to the ship with uh, Kirk in it at the beginning, I was like, "Oh God, how long is this going to take?" Like, oh, it's only like forty five seconds. This is great. Yeah, and they don't waste any time. Immediate improvement. Yeah, there's no wasted time of jumping into the story because the moment Khan and his crew, you know, they they put the uh, the Seti eels and Kirk or Kirk and excuse me into uh, Chekhov and Terrell, and they get on board the Reliant. I mean, stuff just starts happening. Mm-hmm. Like immediately, there's yeah. no wasted, like you said, Jeremy, there's no 20 minutes of this. We don't get close up to the Reliant until later on. It immediately jumps into the plot and gets you immediately engaged with the characters, which I think was smart, especially compared to motion picture where, yeah, it's two hours and 20 minutes or whatever, and it feels like five hours. Whereas... Yeah. Also, they're they're nowhere near as precious with those models because they blow those some bitches up. Well, so they had so a couple of a couple of things there. So the the model they have to be very careful with though, because this particular enterprise has to survive into another movie. But um, so no no spoilers there for you, Jeremy. But uh, okay, it's just you know it's not magically fixed in the next film. Um, well, I, I more meant um, Khan's ship. Cause oh they, yeah, they tag the warp nacelle after the the second volley. And that thing goes up. You'd think that that would be a warp core breach. You'd think so. Only in next generation. Only only in next generation, right? Um, But one thing I I want to point out, though, is this movie is so much faster. But in a couple of places, uh, it's too fast. For example, Scotty's nephew. Yes. Which was cut from the release version for some reason. It's there's a more detail in the director's cut, which is now available on Blu-ray for those interested. But um, yeah, in the theatrical cut of this movie, Scotty just shows up on the bridge with like a bloody dying kid who you. Oh, that was his nephew. That's his nephew. Oh, sad. Yeah, and you. Yeah, I was I was wondering about that. Like, why is he just bringing this corpse on deck? Because you don't know. In, in the theatrical cut, they totally cut out that conversation because in the beginning of the film, when Kirk's going through his you know little checkup. Um, on things, Scotty explains who the kid is because the kid is very ambitious, you know. And it's a Aww. it's a very small moment, but it at least explains why Scotty would bring him to the bridge and not sick bay. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Well, and then it was the same kid who then has one last word for Kirk mm-hmm. in sick bay after Bones waves like a wand over. Yep. Him. Yes, I was like, I was like, oh, he used that wand to to stabilize this kid. He's fine now. And then he, you know, has one last line, and then nope. Just throws a sheet over him. It's like, oh, I, he seemed like he was doing better. He was not talking a minute ago, and now he's talking. It's it's intense it like though. A market improvement because like he yeah. he leaves blood on on Kirk's uniform. Yeah, that was very Tarantino of this movie. <laughs> Back to Tarantino. <laughs> well, my, my, my point is, it just drives home the stakes that this is real. People are dying, and they're not clean deaths. You know, where someone is just vaporized into nothing, right? These are yeah. these are people who are getting burned and and broken and bloodied um, for this vengeance of something that happened twenty five years ago. Yeah, because like you're right, because even the scene where they're jury rigging the torpedoes and they get hit in the in the side again, and the torpedo bay explodes. There's that one stunt actor who's on fire, like mm-hmm. or it was a body double right. or whatever, but he's like burnt. I'm like, holy crap, this is intense. Well, and on Khan's ship, there was constantly stuff falling from the ceiling. 
Like there was a, a beam that falls on a guy and like a giant pile of wires that fall like right on the captain's chair. It's like very, very insecure. Well, I don't, I don't remember how clear it is in, in the theatrical cut for this, but the, the main guy, the younger guy under Khan, who uh, they kind of have a moment when he... Who is constantly mugging for the camera. Yeah, so that's supposed to be Khan's son. Uh, so that's why there's a connection there, right? So Khan loses his son, and Scotty loses a nephew, and you know it's all very fam- familial, right? Khan lost his wife, and Kirk discovers his son, and, and things like that. So it's all family based. It's it's very sta- stakes are very high in this film. Yeah, I would have I would have traded Kirk's son for both of like knowing both of those relationships because that's that's much more impactful to the character development whereas i mean i guess if kirk's son is going to pay off in later movies it's good but for for just this story it was just like okay he has a son and yeah i mean i I totally agree with you his son does just set up some stuff that ends up being incredibly important to the kirk character this is that, true. that just co- comes back multiple times. So, uh, and we'll, we'll, you'll get to that stuff as you watch the the remaining films. But uh, yeah, so of course a lot of, of stuff happens, and you know they have the big battles and, and things of that nature, and then it it, it comes down to um, the iconic death scene of Spock. Yes, which yeah. has been mirrored in dozens of films. Even in other Star Trek films, somewhat unsuccessfully. Yeah, I mean, and that was that was the thing that I found funny because I saw Into Darkness first, so I've I've seen this in reverse. <laughs> yes, yes, you have. And see, see, here's the thing: when I watch Wrath of Khan, I get emotional during that scene. It's a very sad scene for me. And when I was a kid, it made me cry. Into Darkness. I, I had to stop myself in the theater from laughing. Yes, uh, I, am, I am with you. Well, especially with the the tribal based resurrection. Well, not before that, way before that, <laughs> when when yeah. when Spock yells the con in in Into Darkness. Uh, no offense, Zachary Quinto. I love Zachary Quinto, and his Spock I think does an amazing uh, representation of the character. But yeah. you know, when Kirk does the con, first off, it's William Shatner as Kirk in 1982 on the moon and he's yelling at a watch. Yep. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it's done really for theatrics on purpose, because as you find out later, Kirk had a plan and he and Spock were, were bullshitting Khan the entire time and he was going to get away and it was going to be fine. Right. So it's, it's over the top and it's campy because it was also acting. Yeah. And I, and they even slip in there when Spock's talking to Kirk, he's like, you know, he's experienced, or excuse me, he's intelligent, but not experienced. And they they essentially knew that the yeah. whole time, that intelligence alone doesn't win battles. The high end, low whiz. That's yeah, that's right. No, it's true because you know, he's got the you know he, his his patterns suggest two dimensional thinking, but they're in outer space, right? Or you know just his his straight focus on it being nothing but revenge. Whereas he, you know Khan is on his own; he's not listening to any of his crew members. He's not even listening to his son when they're when suggestions are made, right? His son has that whole speech about they have Genesis. He can get whatever he wants, but all Khan wants is that revenge. Kirk has his team, and he's listening to them. Yep. And even the simple, the subtle, during the communication scene when Spock's talking to Kirk, oh, if we play this by the books, as Lieutenant Savick would, hours would seem like days. 
And, <laughs> you know, Eve Khan didn't pick up on that at all. Like no, uh, no, uh, no when, uncoded uh, transmissions on an open frequency or something like that. Yeah, Khan immediately yeah. is like, "Oh, the, it's going to take four days." It, yeah, it's going to take four days. <laughs> well, and from from Hell's Heart, I stab at thee is, is like a Moby Dick quote, isn't it? It is. Yes. So it's Khan. Khan is aware that you know he is Ahab chasing something that is going to get him killed. It's like you'd think if he's augmented and he's supposed to be smarter and better that he wouldn't portray himself as Ahab. But, see, that's the key, though. That's why the eugenics program was a failure, because the augments and why that was later outlawed and it was an issue in Deep Space Nine, which I don't want to spoil for anybody who doesn't know, is because they were unstable. All they had was ambition. They had hyper-intelligence, hyper-aggression, and hyper-ambition. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but even the the story of the eugenics, their major downfall was they were smarter than everybody, yes, but they also attacked everybody. Like, mm-hmm. all at once, they attacked in every direction. Like, oh, we're smarter. We're going to win. Without realizing, that, well, well, crap, the whole world just united against us, and now we have no plan. Well, yeah, I mean, as they're portrayed in Enterprise, they're like all hormonal teenagers. They're all CW stars, just like, <laughs> it was, raging at each other. To be fair, it was... I, uh, I just wish in... It was UPN, which became the CW. Right. So. <laughs> wow. I just wish in DS9, once once Bashir came out as an augment, that he, his uniform would have just changed to tattered leather and like, <laughs> pants with holes in them and stuff. It's like, this is who I am now. Well, unfortunately, by Deep Space Nine, that was the Maquis uniform. <laughs> That's true. <So. laughs> he could have he gone undercover as the Maquis for a day and just liked it. That's like, true. I'm going to keep yeah, it true. now. He yeah. just wears his two pips and that's yeah. it. This feels so right. Uh, but but what's interesting is the end of the film is something that's always been, I felt, very conflicted about. Because at the end, Kirk is finally happy about something. He's, and yes. he feels young. You know, um, and his friend, his oldest friend, the closest thing he has to a brother, is dead. Sacrificed yeah. himself for the crew. And it's given Kirk, I guess, the best way I can reconcile that in my head is it's given Kirk a second, a second chance on life, I guess, a second path for him to move forward. So one, one thing that zoomed by near that point was, was Spock putting his hand on bones and saying, remember, is that, that's going to pay off later? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I've, I figured as much, I was just like, how, what, what did, what was that? But yeah, okay. Keep, so I don't want to ruin. I don't want to ruin anything for you. But there is in the Star Trek universe, there is really only one real trilogy, and that's Star Trek's two, three, and four. Right. Search for Spock, and then what's the third? The one, one with the whales. Uh, Voyage home. Voyage home. <laughs> the fourth one, yeah. Uh, the one with the whales. Come on. The one with the whales. Uh, and those those three movies are deeply connected to each other in a way that. Most trilogies just aren't. They, they, they could really be watched as almost a solid, like, six-hour film. You are? I would agree with you. Mm. Or one Lord of the Rings film. How about that? <laughs> well, I'm glad they're all on Hulu. And I love Lord of the Rings, I'm just saying. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, you're right. You're totally, It's one extended edition of The Return of the King. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't, want, I don't want us to gloss over the climax of the film, but... Everybody's seen Rathacon, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure. But the, the thing about the climax is they wrap it up 
pretty succinctly and pretty nicely. I mean, there's you got your space battles, you have your emotions, you have the 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 Genesis device being a threat to stuff, and you've got Spock. You know, I don't want to spoil it in case people haven't seen it, but you got Spock doing stuff, and it's cool because they they're they're kind of crossing certain emotional thresholds that they don't usually do in Star Trek up until that point, and. There's no closure for the bad guy, except in a bad way, because, you know, it's Star Trek. We know what happens. But yeah. it, you go full circle. It's one of those movies you go full circle, and Derek, you were just talking about it. Kirk, at the beginning of the film, has grown, but he feels like he's almost grown younger. Which, yeah. yeah. And is, I think that was the key, is they. it's almost self-referential for the franchise uh, to basically say to itself, we've been around for a while, but this this is a new chapter in the Star Trek fandom, right? The franchise is going to be moving forward, and we have stuff to do. Well, in the metaphor that Kirk is is hiding from himself and and kind of uh, you know in self exile because he feels he's too old to do this job, then he does the job successfully and is no longer hiding from himself. That's kind of them, you know, coming out of out of entertainment mothballs and saying like no we can still do this look at us do this mm-hmm. so it's it's very much like it's the the movie itself is a proof of concept that the movie deserves to exist good mm-hmm. point and i love the music the music is amazing oh yeah, great. so 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 good i actually bought the lp when mondo put it out uh like a year ago oh, it's nice. just so good i love listening to it i really do um it's it's really great. Well, but uh, so, what are your final thoughts, Derek, on Wrath of Khan? I I love it. I think it represents the original cast very very well. If not at their best, their second best. Uh, with the argument being the undiscovered country, it reignited the franchise. I mean, at the end of the day, like it or not, without the Wrath of Khan, Star Trek would have faded away after the motion picture. This reignited interest in the franchise that brought forth five more movies with this cast alone and it paved the way for the next generation. So I love The Wrath of Khan. It is always one of my top three Star Trek films. Um, I think that it is well-paced, If uh, especially if you watch the director's cut. I think the director's cut fills in the blanks. That, that are there, which I don't believe there are many of, and it sets up the rest of this of the story for these characters in a very strong way that still feels like a completed film. Jeremy, what about you, buddy? Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, for for someone who hadn't seen it, that was it. it felt it was it was much more modern. Like my my big worry because uh, I I still haven't watched. Uh, the vast majority of the original series, so I I didn't know these characters super well aside from kind of like cultural osmosis in in that like you know obviously I know who they are because I've followed every other trek and you kind of just pick it up, um, but just as far as uh, the portrayals and the acting and all this stuff, it it felt very very skilled, very modern, wasn't as campy as I was worried it was going to be. Um, there was there was a lot of scenery chewings from from Kirk and Ricardo Montalban, but you know that uh, Shatner is kind of doing a satire of Shatner as uh, misdirect. Um, 
like I had always I had always seen that clip of him yelling Khan. I didn't know until actually watching the movie that that was kind of a goof on himself, which is which is fun to find out. Um, but yeah, it was it was interesting to finally get the the last pieces of connective tissue of all of the uh, Family Guy cutaways that I've seen of this movie. <laughs> uh, having so I've only I've already seen about half of this movie in Family Guy cutaways. So I now see the the rest and and can put together the full puzzle. Yeah, I, I do want to add on that when I so I've I've seen the whole original series. I've seen I, I've seen all all of Star Trek except for the finale of the animated series, and that's on purpose. Um, so, but when I picture the the original series, this is how I picture them in these uniforms at this age with these relationships because it feels the most natural for for me. Yeah, I'm with you there. Greg, what about you? How did you how do you feel about this movie? Well, it's unequivocally my favorite Star Trek film of all time. Um the just the pacing, the action, the the character interaction, um all that stuff, the con, the throwback to Space Seed, even Khan's vengeance, which is so single minded, but the passion and the arrogance and the drive behind it, I thought was more well done in 82 than has been done in modern films. Like, I love the James Bond films, but even when I watch some of the James Bond villains, I'm like, ugh, what you, I'm like, you're a terrible villain. I'm like, I'm like, Khan would destroy you. I'm like that. I'm that, I'm that kind of person. Um, (laughs) and I still love that it's 2017 and people are still talking about Ricardo Montalban's chest from Ratha Khan. Like, it's epic. He's done and he's done interviews about it. And he's like, it's mine. Why do you care so much? <laughs> and, and I know, I mean, he, excuse me, he used to do interviews about it before he passed away, but all that stuff up until he passed away, he was doing interviews about like his last year. He's like, why are you still asking me about this? That was 80, that was 30 years ago, people. Um, mm-hmm. I wish he was still alive. That'd be amazing. I'd find a way to have him bring him back for a movie. Uh, but alas. So, yeah. so we all universally like Star Trek 2. We're at the con. Um, yep. Not the most controversial stance to take, I think. But <laughs> no, that's that's true. So it's a genuinely good classic sci-fi movie. It is. It is five out of five. So Jeremy, yes. Jeremy, keep up with watching the films, buddy. But I mean, I mean, gonna wait till we do them for the show. So I will, I will always be coming to Red Shirts and Runabouts with a a fresh take when it comes to original series stuff. It's fun. I think that's a really cool thing because it, it's hard for me to to take myself out of my context, which is I really don't remember a point in my life where I wasn't watching these movies. And context. I, I, <laughs> right, context. Uh, but it's, it's, it's true, though. These, these movies have been a part of my life, the first six movies, have been a part of my life longer than any other pop culture movie TV thing. So I don't really remember a time without them. I've I've had them literally my entire life. My dad had them when I was born, and I've been wa- I was born in 1987. So I've been watching them since I was born, or since they came out. Um, so it's hard for me to think what would it be like to see them in my 20s or 30s for the first time. I, I don't know. Well, it's kind of nice to think about that. It's, but yeah, it's pretty good. Before we wrap, <laughs> before we start wrapping up, uh, Derek, how can people find you? online 
Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. I am at the Star Trek Dude on Twitter and Facebook. I also host a couple other shows on the network. Uh, we are part of the Heroes Podcast Network, of course, at heroespodcast.com. But I also host Gamer Heroes, our video game podcast, every Tuesday, and Screen Heroes, which is our movie and TV podcast, uh, every Wednesday with live streams Tuesday night. And on to Jeremy. I'm on Twitter at Zen Munkin, and I host a podcast on the network that comes out on Saturday called the Saturday Morning Tooncast, where my friend Danielle and I watch cartoons from the 90s and eat sugary cereal. And also, before we go, uh, I do want to mention that the first issue of the Star Trek Discovery comic book came out this week. Oh! I haven't I haven't read through it yet, but I did pick it up, so uh, maybe we can uh, talk about that a little bit next week, or at least I can inform you guys if you don't pick up weeklies like i do yeah it's a great idea they slipped that out pretty quietly um i totally missed it yeah yeah, yeah. Me too it's it's called the light of kalos and goes over uh i think some of takumba's background uh, okay yeah yeah and you can find me greg bosco uh, on twitter at the underscore bittersteel and also at yahoo.com which is the underscore bittersteel.com or excuse me at yahoo.com and remember everybody we're always looking for good ideas on topics to discuss it's the star trek universe the content is everywhere like jeremy just mentioned a new comic book for discovery came out there's more comic books every week every month there's more stories there's lots of youtube content so content, content. there we go <laughs> so drop us a like drop subscribe to the podcast uh we love doing this we love talking star trek we love interacting with the fans online um yeah be sure to hit us up at heroes podcast on twitter Facebook, Instagram, uh, heroespodcast.com, and go find us on iTunes. We're on Google Play, as well as uh, an RSS feed if you want to drop us in your, your app. We're also on Blog Talk Radio. And otherwise, uh, unless there's any more closing comments, that's it for Red Shirts of Run- and Runabouts. Uh, we recorded this on December 6th. And don't worry, everybody, we will be back again next week discussing some more topics. Uh, might even might even stray away from our movie reviews. Get a little surprise out there for y'all. Uh, just put so much time between me seeing this movie and the- <laughs> <laughs> I want Spark to be bad. That's our that's our plan, buddy. Cruel, cruel and unusual. All right. Well, again, thank you all for listening to Red Shirts and Runabouts, uh, part of the Heroes Podcast Network. We will look forward to chatting with you next week. Bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.